Today, we'll be analyzing the past week in wild news. We will be dissecting four theories of mine as they relate to Joe Biden and the Democrats' campaign strategy, and we'll be discussing why Christians should care about Israel. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have really important political faith and cultural conversations, all with the goal of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. It is an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a lot to cover, but before we do, I want to give you uh, some highlights of how this show is continuing to grow and to spread thanks to you and the way in which you are spreading the word on your social media sites and by word of mouth and as well uh, because of the Lord and his grace to continue promoting the show and spreading the word out. I'm just very, very thankful. So currently at the time of this recording, we are in 15 countries around the world. We're in 40 states in the United States, and we have listeners in 500 major cities around the globe. I'm blown away, and it has been a blast so far. I hope you've enjoyed the show, whether you've listened to all seven episodes previous to this or whether this is your first episode. Thank you for being here. So normally on this show, I really focus on one topic for the majority, at least, of the episode. Today, I want to do something a little differently. I want to cover a few different topics as more of a current events update. Also, I ran out of time on Tuesday to do my question and answer portion. So today, I'm going to do two questions that I'm going to answer. Looking forward to that as well. So jumping right in. There was a, I'm actually just going to read you this headline. This is a real headline. This is not a satire article. This is a real thing that's actually taking place currently in Lincoln County in Oregon. The headline says this, Oregon County issues face mask order that exempts non-white people. Let me read that again. Oregon County issues face mask order that exempts non-white people. The article says, this is the New York Post reporting, Lincoln County, Oregon has exempted non-white people from a new order requiring that face coverings be worn in public to prevent racial profiling. Here's what happened. Lincoln County creates this new mandate requiring that everybody wears face masks except for communities of color in that county which there are so many connotations from all of this. Uh, they said that this was to fight racial profiling and racism. But here's the problem. One of two things is happening. Either the masks don't mean anything, because if the masks meant anything and they're actually really helpful, you would assume that a county, the governing body of a region, would require that everyone wears them. If they were really as helpful as we've been told, you would assume that everyone would be asked, please wear these masks. And therefore, because they're only requiring it for a certain group of people, that this is actually not nearly as helpful as they're saying it is. That's first option. Second option is the masks are very helpful and they are only requiring a certain color of people to wear them. This has massive negative connotations because if the masks actually help as much as we've been told, if the masks actually bless your safety and your health and the health of those around you, 
as much as we've been told, and yet the county is only making the white people in a region wear them and is totally fine with people of color, uh, uh, black and brown people not wearing them, that means that they are inherently caring about the white person's health more than the black person's health. 80% of Lincoln County in Oregon is white. 20% are people of color. So if that's the case, if masks are as helpful as we've been told, then that county is totally fine with people of color getting coronavirus and facing all the implications of that and is more strict about white people not getting the coronavirus. I can't believe that this is a real thing taking place. Honestly, I'm blown away. So either the masks don't mean anything, and this is all a political move, or this was a racist act on the part of this county because they're basically saying we care more about white people's health than we do about black and brown people's health. There's no other in-between option. There's not. So that's the first story. Second thing that happened this weekend in our busy week of news, Bubba Wallace, the NASCAR driver, he is the lone African-American NASCAR driver in the series. And he has, uh, over the weekend, excuse me, on Sunday, he was notified by his team that there was a noose, is how they described it, hanging in his garage at Talladega in Alabama. Immediately, this story made national news. And really, for the next 48 hours, it did not leave national news. It's still in national news, but now it's morphed. I'll tell you why in a second. But at the moment that that happened, it was quickly reported. NASCAR released a statement, and national media was on it. And this was obviously called a hate crime, and this is horrible, which, by the way, if this would have been a noose, of course, that would have been horrible and a hate crime. But before any investigation was launched into it, the entire nation rallied around Bubba. And actually, it was a beautiful display of unity in a lot of ways. A lot of the drivers came and walked along his car as they did kind of a lap at the the racetrack and showed signs of support and solidarity for him. And it was a beautiful, unifying moment. There was also a lot of name-calling and finger-pointing, and of course this would happen at NASCAR because all their fans are racist. I mean, these are things that we were literally hearing on major news networks like CNN, MSNBC, to name a few. Well, FBI gets called in, 15 agents, and they start an investigation. Within 48 hours, here's what they found. No charges would be filed in the Bubba Wallace investigation because the rope resembling the noose had actually been there for months and Bubba Wallace had only been in that stall for about a week. That rope had been there since October or November of last year. And on top of that, it wasn't actually a noose. It was a rope used to pull down a garage door. So no hate crime. It wasn't even racially motivated and it was not a noose. Now, this should have been a moment when this story broke that the country celebrated and said, yes, amen, that's so good news, that's such good news that this was not a hate crime. It's really, really good to hear that our fears of what this might be did not come true. That's a really good thing, and we should all be celebrating that, that, hey, Bubba, you were not profiled in this instance. This was not a hate crime towards you. Instead, what happened is that there was a whole section of the political and ideological aisle in the United States that almost were disappointed that this didn't take place, to the point where people like Reverend Al Sharpton actually said that they're not giving up on this and that they're going to keep pushing at the investigation of this because this clearly was a hate crime and they're going to keep bringing it up and they're not going to stop bringing it up. We had major news anchors echo the same sort of sentiment, even though every every, every, every slice of evidence pointed to the very opposite, that this was not at all 
A, a crime, or B, even racially motivated? Two big takeaways there. A, we've got to stop jumping to assumptions. I saw so many people post right away and start to demonize NASCAR workers. So many people started tweeting, or excuse me, NASCAR fans started tweeting about it, started tweeting about the South. Of course, this would happen there. They're mad about that. I mean, it was, it was really astounding to watch the immediate pointing of fingers and the politicization and the weaponizing of this instance. So many people jumping to assumptions. And for us as Christians, we've got to remember, it's so important. We pray before we do anything. We sit, we pray. That's our first instinct, not post a million things about it and assume we know the whole story that hadn't even started the investigation. Problem is you're called a racist when you do that, which is unfortunate today, but that's the reality. The second big takeaway is that the media needs to be more critical of stories before they post them. I have been blown away over the last few years with the way in which the media has jumped on board with so many stories that end up not being what they thought they were going to be. And the media's job, a journalist's primary responsibility should be to report a story accurately. And sensationalism keeps them from doing that. And then it harms the American people in the process because it creates a division where there doesn't need to be. So those are the two big takeaways there. Third story In my last episode regarding police reform, if you haven't listened to that from Tuesday, I highly recommend going back and giving that a listen. I mentioned how the Senate and the House had both established legislation that they were going to propose related to, or had proposed, excuse me, related to police reform. Well, the Senate, led by uh, the black Republican, Tim Scott from South Carolina, released a piece of legislation full of a lot of really productive reforms. We talked about those on Tuesday. And Tim's thought was actually that 70% of these issues were things that Democrats and Republicans could agree on. And the 30% that weren't were things that, you know, they would go back to the table and continue to negotiate if that was the Democrats' desire. Well, I mentioned at the end of that episode that it's so important that this topic, police reform, is looked at through a common sense lens and is a bipartisan effort moving forward. That's the only way we're actually going to get anything done. So that was Tim Scott's goal. Nancy Pelosi then comes out and says that the Senate GOP, the Republican Party, is trying to get away with, quote, the murder of George Floyd. So all that bipartisan desire was basically thrown out the window. And it's a real shame because this is a really productive piece of legislation. And Tim Scott actually offered 20 points to be able to amend it. And Nancy walked out, accused Republicans of trying to get away with the murder of George Floyd. So we need to pray, pray for the division in the political scene in the United States, because that was really hard to see when they're trying to aim for a common goal of making sure that nothing like what happened to George Floyd ever happens again. Final thing I want to talk about before we get into kind of a a bit of a more thorough topic is this week, and I've actually touched on this in the last few episodes, it's been very clear that the goal in our country amongst a group of the population that have been violently protesting, not peacefully protesting, burning down buildings, tearing down statues, defacing monuments, all these different things, their goal is revolution, not reform. Black Lives Matter movement, their goal is revolution, not reform. I told you in the last episode, we have video footage now to confirm that the Black Lives Matter founders are trained Marxists. The goal of Marxism cannot come to fruition without massive revolution where they tear down everything the United States stands on and start again. Well, in the first two weeks after George Floyd's death, we saw a lot of arguments for taking down Confederate statues and people that actively fought for slavery. 
And I actually can understand that argument. I don't believe statues should ever be torn down, but I, I, do, I do see the argument for voting as a city council to remove statues of Confederate soldiers. That argument is actually a, a worthwhile one, and it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a valid point to be made to say, why do we still have monuments up of Robert E. Lee and other people who actively fought against the union that we were supposed to be continually making more perfected. And actually, I really see both sides on that issue. There's kind of the Condoleezza Rice argument, a black woman, by the way, who basically believes that we should keep the monuments up, even Confederate monuments, because they remind us of how far we've come. And there's the other side that says, yeah, but it kind of idolizes the people that actively fought against our union, so we should not keep them up and we should replace them. What happened, though, is the argument moved from that to basically let's burn the whole system down. And movements like Black Lives Matter took to the streets and began to deface and burn and topple statues of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant. And this one's so confusing. He literally fought for the union. He's the reason that the union won. Abraham Lincoln, again, abolitionists, known abolitionists religious figures, people that have had nothing to do with slavery. Teddy Roosevelt, who was an incredibly progressive president. So the goal moved from known former racists to the people that built this country, even if they actively fought against racism, just because they're old white men that were contributing to what they now believe is the systemic racism in the patriarchal society we live in today. The goal is not reform, friends. The goal is revolution. And it's really important that we recognize this and that we don't tolerate it because Ronald Reagan said, you know, your freedom is only one generation away from going extinct. And if we're not recognizing how much of a monolith the United States is, how much of a beautiful place this is, and the progress that we've made, and the freedoms that are afforded to us here that are so rare in many other parts of the world, we'll lose this. We'll lose those freedoms. We'll lose this union that's continually perfected as we grow and continue to make reforms. But the American experiment is a beautiful one, and we cannot let it slip from our arms. We've promoted religious freedom around the world. We've lifted more people out of poverty because of the way in which our economy is structured than any nation on the history of the planet. Americans give more to charity a year per capita than any nation on the planet. We'll cover that more especially as we get closer to the election, because it'll be interesting to see how the desire for revolution continues to manifest itself. But we, we got to pray on that one too. So today I wanted to do something fun. I wanted to talk about four theories that I have on the coming election. There's no real rhyme or reason for this other than it's something that I've actually been asked a lot recently is, hey, tell us a little bit about Biden and the coming election. You know, we're only four months out. What's kind of the, the, the deal with how things are shaping up here? And I thought it would be really interesting to kind of go over today from this point where we are in late June, what are the four things that I could realistically see happening on the Democratic side of the aisle between now and November? The first is this. The Democratic Party runs Biden on Trump. And here's what I mean. They make the entire election a referendum on Trump. They stir up as much hatred as they can amongst the Democrats and kind of left-leaning independents for Trump. They try to uh, pay for as many ads as they can, get as much media support, which is, again, definitely uh, majority left-leaning, to basically cast Trump in such a negative light that come November, 
the general public is basically voting on getting Trump out of office rather than putting Biden into office. Now, there's a lot of issues with this plan, and there's still uh, two months till the convention on August 17th. There's a lot that can take place, but there's some polls that were recently released uh, that 55% of Americans believe that Biden is in early stages of serious mental decline. 55% of Americans, 77% of Republicans, which isn't necessarily surprising, 56% of independents, which is a huge deal, and then 32% of Democrats, which is really the astounding piece about this poll, that even his own base knows and is well aware that he's a weak candidate. And I'm not making fun of his cognitive decline. I'm not trying to mock him. I'm just simply stating that he is a weak candidate. He hasn't made a public press conference in, I believe, 83 days where he's taken serious questions. He hasn't left his basement much over the last two months. And so they're aware that Biden's a weak candidate. They'll basically focus all their attention on Trump. They'll bite their tongue when we come through the debates because I really believe Trump will run away with debates and then they know that as well. So they'll kind of prep themselves for those moments where they'll take losses, but their goal is, is just keep Biden awake long enough until the election and hope that people don't like Trump. The second theory I have is this, that the Democratic National Committee will basically say, Biden is not fit to serve two terms. He's not fit to serve one term. And actually, he's even admitted on tape that he's not fit to serve two terms. But they would basically plan on running his campaign based upon who his VP choice is. Now, there's evidence for this because Joe Biden has been in his basement for the last few months, and the media has really avoided talking about him much. What they have instead focused a great deal more on is who he might choose as his VP. He has been very clear that he will choose a woman. It will likely be a woman of color. And he will focus on ensuring that that VP candidate is in the spotlight into this coming election, while Biden really remains a puppet candidate. Here's what a puppet candidate is since really the beginning of political Uh, structured politics. We have seen nations around the world. Uh, We've seen this in Vietnam during the Vietnam War era. We saw it in China in multiple uh, seasons of their existence. We've seen it in Eastern Europe where there are these puppet leaders that will basically do whatever is asked of the powers that be that pay the bills metaphorically. So Biden would get into office and he would do whatever the powers that be ask him to do. He would go with the shifting winds of the democratic politics. And because of his lack of stamina and his desire to conform would go whichever ways in which pop culture would lead him to go. Now, the reality is Biden has always been this candidate. Both sides can agree upon that. Joe Biden is not somebody that holds a lot of his own convictions. He just does whatever's popular. That's why he shifted his opinion so much on different issues throughout the years. So with that said, the Democratic National Committee would see a situation in which Joe Biden, they wouldn't focus on him too much up until November. They'd focus a whole lot more on the VP. It would basically be the VP running against Trump. And then the election would take place. Biden would serve the first two years of his presidency. And then the Democratic National Committee would say, hey, Joe, you're not fit for this role. He would step down. The 22nd Amendment would be invoked. And the VP would step into power and would carry out the remainder of that first term and then would run for another two terms would be their goal if all went according to plan in that scenario. Now, again, this feels a little far-fetched. I think if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that there's not much that's far-fetched. But I will say this. 
This is a very dangerous thing because it makes a total mockery of our political politics. It would be misleading to the American public. It would be very dangerous to the office of presidency. It would really cause a lot of mistrust and disrespect for the sham of our politics if they were to go about this scenario in which Biden's basically there as a placeholder until it's very clear to everyone involved that he's no longer able to serve in office. And they really know that from the beginning and run him on his VP. Third theory is this. Biden gets replaced by another candidate. Now, this may feel far-fetched as well, because you may be saying, Michael, I thought that Biden was a shoe-in. I thought he was for sure the nominee and that this was all settled and done. Well, no, there is still about two months until the convention on August 17th, where they will formally announce who that candidate is for the presidency. So there's a lot that can take place between now and August 17th. They recognize that Biden's a weak candidate, and they will replace him with another candidate who is primaried. So they'll take a Pete Buttigieg or an Amy Klobuchar or a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren, and they'll put that person as their candidate that they hope that the Democratic Party will rally around. Now, you may then say, why wouldn't they choose Bernie? He was number two. Well, the Democratic elite cannot stand Bernie Sanders. They've done everything they can in the last two election cycles to sabotage his run at presidency. That will not happen. It will be one of the more moderate types that they hope can inspire independent voters, and that would be their goal. Fourth theory is that Biden gets replaced by an outsider, somebody that did not primary. Now, this may feel even more far-fetched, and I will admit that this is the most far-fetched out of all four that I've mentioned. But there is enough of a possibility that I feel it merits being in this theoretical group set here. For this reason, again, they know Biden's a weak candidate. 2020 is a crazy election year. There wasn't any candidates that anybody felt super strongly about, that anybody was really excited about in the Democratic primary. And they basically would say, it's time for a new season. We are going to bring someone in that has fresh eyes, they hope, and can run this and see what happens. So the name Michelle Obama has been thrown out. The name, or thrown around, excuse me, the name uh, Governor Cuomo has been thrown around, uh, Governor Newsom, all three of which would be disastrous. Uh, Michelle Obama has vehemently come against any rumors that she would maybe even be considering that. She said it's not going to happen. Governor Cuomo, I think, will go down in history as one of the worst governors the United States has ever seen in any state, especially after he took a bunch of elderly COVID patients and put them in nursing homes where rampant deaths took place. I don't think that'll be a good legacy that they would want to bring into their race for presidency. Gavin Newsom has done the same out here in California. There's been a few other names thrown around, but nobody that really pops out at this point in time. Hillary Clinton's even been thrown out, but I think after 2016, that lesson was hopefully learned that that is not a candidate that people get excited about on the Democratic side of the aisle. So this is far-fetched, but I believe it still could, in a Twilight Zone scenario, happen. Now, I also think this is a bit of political suicide because what they would basically be, the DNC would basically be saying to Democratic voters is, hey, we know that you guys spent an entire election cycle listening to our debates and listening to like 104 candidates. I know there literally weren't that many, but felt close to that. We know you've listened to them and you've engaged in this process. You voted in your respective primary. And at the end of the day, we really don't care. We're going to put in somebody that we've chosen behind closed doors and you don't have a say in it. It's risky, but it wouldn't be the craziest thing that's ever happened. So we will see. Now, which of these do I believe is the most realistic heading into August 17th and then heading into November? I would say that it's a toss up between one and two. 
I think it's realistic right now to assume, because it's what we're currently seeing, that Biden will run on Biden against Trump, and they will basically hope to make the DNC, uh, will basically hope to make this election a referendum on Trump. They will try to stir up as much negative media coverage toward Trump and try to uh, turn the tide of public opinion against him up until November with the hopes that Biden just stays awake long enough to end up running, and they would count on that to hopefully take them into the presidency. I I would probably lean a little toward that, but I also think it's a toss-up between that and number two because, again, we are seeing the VP conversation take the spotlight in the national media, and they've made this election already so much about his vice presidential pick that I think it's really important that we pay attention. Is this election actually about Trump versus Biden, or is there a whole other thing going on uh, that's a little deeper where... They have hopes that the VP would be who carries out the political future. Again, can't make any fair accusations at this point. There's too much still yet to be seen, but it is an interesting election cycle. That is for sure. And there will be a lot that we continue to cover as we go through the next few weeks and then coming months. Again, like I mentioned, we'll have a great election series. I'm really excited to talk about that. But I'll leave it there for now, just some fun food for thought. And hopefully that gives you a little insight and brain food as we look at the intricacies of presidential politics, because there really are so many as it relates to our two-party system, et cetera. So two questions that I want to answer, one uh, that I had planned on answering Tuesday, and then the other that I would like to answer today. I'm going to combine these together and do both today. I'm loving this question and answer portion, by the way. Thank you so much for sending these in. And if you have any further questions, direct message me on Instagram, send in a request on my website. I would love to hear from you. I got a great question last week after my episode on Trump and the Christian response to Trump and the difference between policy and personality and the importance of recognizing that there should be a difference in how we view those two things. This listener asked, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I understand. But what about Trump's allegations of sexual assault? How can you as a Christian support him when those sorts of things come up? First, I would say valid question. Good question and definitely worth discussing. I want to answer this question in two parts. The first thing I would say is that in our country, it is a constitutional necessity because of the 5th and 14th Amendments that we would grant everybody due process under the law when they are accused of something. Not only is this a constitutional uh, precedent that it's important to recognize, it's also a biblical necessity. John 7, 51, Deuteronomy 19, there are multiple times throughout the scriptures where the Bible talks about the importance of the presumption of innocence, that it's actually a sin for me to accuse someone of something and see them as guilty unless they have been proven so through a thorough process. With that being said, while Trump has been accused of sexual misconduct endeavors in the past, assaults and such, he's never been proven guilty in a court of law charged or convicted on any of these different sexual assault allegations. It's never been proven that there's actually a legal activity, sexual misconduct, assault that's taken place toward him. So for me to hold him to that as a mark against his character is actually a sin. And it's a sin if I do that to either side, to either political leader. If I accuse someone of something and then assume guilt when they have not been proven guilty, and Trump has not been proven guilty on any of these different sexual assault allegations, then I cannot hold him to that. 
That's the first thing. Second thing is this. If you're not going to vote for Trump because of his sexual assault allegations, then in order to be morally consistent, you also couldn't vote for Biden because he's had eight high-profile sexual assault and misconduct allegations to him over the decades as well. So in order to maintain moral consistency, I would have to disqualify both of them. This is why it's so important, going back to my episode last Thursday, to focus on policy, not personality, not allegations. It's important to focus on what are the things we know to be true and what are the things they have said they will do in their presidency as parts of their administrative agenda. And which of those line up more with a biblical worldview? That's got to be our question. So we have to prioritize innocence until proven guilty, and we have to be morally consistent. I can't hold somebody to a standard that I'm not going to hold another person to a standard especially when it comes to politics, because it looks really hyper-biased and it's not good. So I hope that was a helpful answer to the question. Again, it's a valid one, but I think it only goes back to point to the main uh, emphasis, which is policy over personality. With that being said, I want to move to the second question. Love this one as well. Listener asked the other day, why should Christians support Israel? Why should Christians support Israel? Israel is a hot topic in our political scene. If you're a Christian as well, you know that Israel is a hot topic in our faith dialogue for good reason. And I want to break this into two answers. First is there's a political reason we should support Israel. And second, there's a spiritual reason. The political reason is this. Israel is one of our most important allies that values classical liberalism ideas like free speech, like constitutional rights. It's structured a little differently there, but we have similar rights and values that we pursue as a society, rights to life and liberty and property ownership, all these different things that are important in the foundation of Israel that are also important to here in the United States. We're very similar politically. They have a free market system that has spawned innovation in a region of the world that is very archaic. They are a beacon of light for religious freedom in a region of the world that's very, very oppressive to religious minorities. If you're a Christian, you want to live in Israel, not in Syria, not in Iran, certainly. And if you are a, uh, a person that values, again, like I've mentioned, innovation and a desire to continue progressing society with new inventions and new medical advancements. Israel is the place that we should look to. Israel has more scientists, technicians, and engineers per capita than any other nation in the world. They have 140 per 10,000 employees. To give contrast, the United States only has 85 per 10,000 employees, and we're up there. Israel's amazing. It's a wonderful country politically, and they're important to hold as an ally. So again, while their political structure is different in Israel, they value similar things that we do. Spiritually, there's so many reasons that we as Christians should support Israel. I want to read through a few of these verses. I'm not going to actually read through every word of them because we're coming to an end of this episode, but I do want to at least give you the references for you to go and do your own reading. Got Genesis 12:3 where God talks to us about the reality that if we continue to bless the descendants of Abraham and the nation of Israel, he will in turn bless us. If we curse, he will also in turn curse us. Psalm 122, 6, Isaiah 60, 12, Isaiah 43, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 41, Romans 9 through 11. That's an amazing uh, few chapters to read regarding the family of Israel that we've been grafted into. Ephesians 3, 6, it's clear that from the beginning of time, God has placed a severe importance on the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And from the beginning of time, God has maintained these people. And he's brought them through hardship and hardship, and he's invited us into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
It's a part of who we are as Christians. It's a part of our relationship with the Jewish people. It's so important. It's also important from a spiritual perspective to defend Israel. This is a bit of the political side too. Israel is threatened by nearly every nation that surrounds them. The UN mistreats Israel repeatedly. Their Middle Eastern neighbors threaten regularly about their annihilation and destruction. The boycott, divest, sanction movement that is supported by some of our Congress people in the United States, like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, actually calls for the complete eradication of Israel, that they would no longer be a state like we know them today. Iran, the Ayatollah, has said that if he has it his way in 25 years, Israel will be wiped off the face of the planet. So there's political reasons and spiritual reasons. This is actually a really big summer in Israeli politics and in our relationship to Israel. It's been a massive year. It hasn't been reported as much as I would like it to be, but there's a lot happening right now with different uh, sovereignty issues and uh, different delineations between the uh, relationship of Israel and Palestine. There's a lot to cover, and we're going to cover that as we move forward because this is an issue I'm very, very passionate about. But all said and done, God blesses those who bless Israel. We want to individually in our own lives be praying for that nation, and then as a nation, we want to be standing with them and voting accordingly so that with every bit of us, we're able to proactively engage our support for the people of Israel. I've also been there, spent time there, and it is just a wonderfully beautiful country filled with incredible people of all different backgrounds, and it's an amazing place. I highly recommend if you ever get an opportunity to take a trip there. It will bless your life immensely. That's all I've got for today. I'm so thankful that you tuned in. Please subscribe to this show. Follow us on Spotify. Share this show with your friends and family on your social media accounts. Would love that. Would be very honored if you'd leave a positive review. Engage in any questions through social media. Direct message me or engage on the website. Would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Any questions for future episodes. With that being said, we will see you on Tuesday. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. 